thank you also to the parents who brought their kids to Vacation Bible School this week. It was an absolute treat to get to know them better on a personal basis. This is one of the things I love about a family church like ours. I could know every one of these kids by name, know that they heard the good news of Jesus for each of them. Uh, As a pastor, that's a real uh, encouragement and a joy. But here we go. Every day, we are regularly exposed to competing visions of the good life. You hear these competing visions at the water cooler. You see it on Instagram. People's own recounting of how they themselves are pursuing the good life or how they have actually achieved it. But it's not just the people that you know and that you follow. Every television show, every sales ad, every book you read, even the preachers, teachers, politicians, and thought leaders that you enjoy All of them are selling you a vision of the good life. The life that they think you were made for. And some of them are very explicit about that. But often the vision of the good life that's being painted and projected to you is being cast very subtly. They don't come out and preach it at you. They just show it to you. Through stories. Through images through embodied depictions of the good life. Again, it could be a picture posted on Facebook. It could be a narrative portrayed in a movie or on a book. It's all painting a picture of someone's vision of the good life. And here's the challenge. As you take in those images, those narratives, those metaphors into your mind, you may not change your beliefs at all but you'll find your desires begin to shift as you find yourself wanting what they have. Our consciences become dull as we start to want things that are outside of God's best for us. The vocabulary of our imagination becomes slowly changed to that of the world while our logical, doctrinal, thinking brain just sits idly by. And so false depictions of the good life couched in narrative imagery and metaphor slip past the mind and affect our imaginations. You could also say it affects our consciences as well. One of the clearest examples of this to me in recent history is the sitcom Modern Family. Uh, When it came out, no pun intended, I can remember it being lauded by progressives and bemoaned by conservatives for its depiction of a modern family. And, of course, there were family dynamics there that fell outside the bounds of kind of biblical norms. But the show wasn't preachy. And as you watched it, the characters were actually kind of great. And the show was really funny. And in the end, a lot of Christians I know watched it weekly. I watched a lot of modern family. And it didn't change our beliefs of what a godly family should look like. But I think it affected our imaginations. I think it affected our guts. I think it affected our our consciences. And what we once viewed with aversion or concern, we became a little more comfortable with. So that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. A false depiction of the good life couched in narrative imagery or metaphor that sneaks past our, our defenses, our doctrine, and ultimately impacts what we imagine 
and how we conceive of the good life. Many of you are hyper aware of this when it comes to your kids and your grandkids, right? You're really cautious about the content that they take in. But are we aware of the impact that it has on us? When false narratives grip the Christian's heart and imagination, it can endanger our experience of holiness and joy in this life. How? How are all these depictions of the good life that we take in on a daily basis? How are these Facebook ads, these political messages? How are blogs and news articles and books? How are these things a threat to our holiness or our joy? Here's how. Holiness and joy start in the imagination. Because we pursue the things we long for and dream of. So answer this question honestly in your head. What is the good life? What does the good life look like? What's the life that you want? What are the things you'd need to do or have or get rid of to have the good life? I doubt any of us, myself included, just imagine dying on a cross. I doubt any of us imagine giving up everything we have for the good of someone else. Why not? Because our imaginations, our desires, our dreams have become more shaped to the narratives of the world than to the heart of Jesus. In fact, where did those images and dreams that just popped up in our heads, where did they come from? These are the sort of narratives we've got to be careful about. When our view of the good life becomes shaped by the world's narratives rather than God's narrative, It is a bent away from holiness. It is a longing for things that are not Jesus. They're things that don't satisfy. It's conformity to the world rather than conformity to Christ and his law of love. And of course, the danger is not only for the Christian. For unbelievers, including our unbelieving children, these depictions of the good life can endanger their soul. Because what are we telling them? This is what you should live for. Every person, every single person in this room and on this planet wants their life to count. We want our life to mean something. When we get to the end of our life, we want to be able to look back and say, Oh, I did something good. (laughs) This was worth it. And these other narratives paint a picture. They're selling a vision of this is the life that will make you happy. This is the life that will let you feel fulfilled. And often these messages are the total opposite of what Jesus taught us. They're the total opposite of his vision of the good life. So what's the solution? Total withdrawal from the world. Burn your TV. Get off social media and only consume Christian media. Well, that is a solution. But even if you do that, we have to realize that supposed Christian content is still selling a vision of the good life that may or may not be accurate. Listen, I realize it would be really... The easiest thing for me to do this morning would be to say, okay, guys, here are the approved TV shows, here are the approved books and YouTube channels, these are the stores you can shop in, and these ones you can't. We're going to boycott this and that. That would create a law. It would be real easy to follow some black and white solution. It's just not that simple. Instead, Christ followers must evaluate every vision of the good life that is presented to them. 
Every depiction of the good life, though it may be a narrative, a metaphor, an image, we have to respond to it with great discretion. We have to be a thinking, discerning people. And what does it have to do with John chapter 10? Well, last week in John chapter 9, we saw Jesus heal a blind man who had been blind from birth. And Jesus didn't only heal his physical blindness, he also healed his spiritual blindness. As the chapter progressed, we saw this man going from saying, I don't know who this guy is. Well, he healed me, so he must be a prophet. You know what? He must be from God. He can't have sin. He can't even be a sinner if he healed me. To At the end, he says, Jesus is the Lord, the Son of God, and then he worshipped him, which is insane in a Jewish context, that this man would fall on his knees before a man and say, this is the Son of God. So he has this complete reversal. He goes from being spiritually and physically blind to seeing Jesus as he truly is. But as this man's faith is progressing, there are others in the text who are growing in their opposition to Jesus. As his faith grows, their hearts harden. And Jesus reflects on this growing division between his followers and his opponents. And he says this in verse 39. Now keep in mind... When the Bible was originally written, we didn't have these chapter and verse breaks. These were put in there much later, like in modern times, by editors. And so the narrative just kind of flows into chapter 10. So you can ignore the heading and the the numbers and all that. So we're going to start in verse 39 of chapter 9. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So in verse 39, Jesus... uh, admits that he causes division. He speaks truth that heals some and then proves others blind who think that they can see. But then he moves on and he makes this analogy about a sheepfold, and this analogy is saying something about his opponents, about the Pharisees, these religious folks, right? More precisely, he makes an analogy about his voice and their voice, right? What they are teaching Versus what he is teaching, what they are saying versus what he is saying. And Jesus' point in the analogy is very clear. His people, his sheep, his elect, they cannot ultimately be led astray by these false shepherds. They're not going to follow their voices ultimately. They're going to follow the voice of the good shepherd. So the Pharisees, what did they do in the previous text? After the man had been healed, they, tried, they pulled him into the synagogue and they persuaded him to reject Jesus in front of everybody. He said, don't believe in this guy. We know that he's a sinner. We know he's not from God. He didn't listen to their voice, did he? Because he was Jesus' sheep. He didn't listen. In fact, he fled from their voice. 
But Jesus doesn't stop with that analogy. He continues in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, and notice he's not the shepherd in this one. He's something different. Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me, including the Pharisees, are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So in the first analogy, Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep. He speaks and the sheep follow. But in the second analogy, he's not the shepherd anymore. No, he's the gate to the sheep pen. He's the door to the fold. And if we enter by Jesus, if we walk in through that gate, what do we receive? Look at verse 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He says, if you enter through me, meaning if you follow me, I'll protect you. You'll be in my sheepfold. And I'm going to lead you out to pasture. I'm going to give you everything you need. But he's not just talking about temporal, physical provision. That's not the salvation, the provision he's talking about necessarily. No, look at verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have what? Life and have it abundantly. If we enter through Jesus, we receive abundant life. What does he mean? He means the life that you were made for. We could rephrase it in modern English and call it the good life. But Jesus is not the only person who promises us the good life. He's not the only person who promises us life as it should be. Look again at verses 8 and 9 and see the other voices. Verse 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen them. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. (laughs) So Jesus says this at the temple with the Pharisees standing around, with the people gathered around. And when Jesus said this, these are fighting words. Jesus is calling these Pharisees, these religious conservatives, he's calling them workers of Satan, opponents of God. Thieves, murderers, sinners. What he said, if they'd perceived it, would have been very offensive. But the goal, he wasn't trying to just make them mad. He was trying to warn his disciples, to warn this newly healed man against these false teachers who were trying to lead them astray. The life that people were made for is accessible only through knowing Jesus and walking his steps behind him. That's what we get from these two analogies. So how do we find the good life? How do we get the good life? We look to Jesus. We listen to Jesus. We observe his life. We celebrate his death and resurrection. And like sheep, we walk in his path. We eat what he tells us to eat. We satisfy our thirst with what he provides. We seek our satisfaction in him, our provision in him, and we aim to live and love like him. But in the meantime, there are others who are trying to draw people away from the flock to other things, and that's bad. What do you call somebody who steals someone else's sheep? It's one of two things, either a wrestler or a wolf, and neither of them is good. But they're everywhere. Other people offering us a different picture of the good life A picture that is not Jesus.
Jesus is the good life. Knowing Jesus is the good life. Satisfying ourselves with Jesus. That is the good life. And what that means is that you and I must have remarkable discretion. The Pharisees dragged this guy into the synagogue and publicly aimed to persuade him to reject Jesus and Jesus' way of life. That can happen to you too. You could be dragged before councils and administration or your peers to be questioned and persuaded toward a differing view of the good life. That does happen. And if that's happened to you, you can no doubt remember that memory immediately because it's usually very traumatic for, for us, right? But it's not the big displays of opposition that usually get us. That's very ham-fisted, you know? And the people of FPC, y'all are pretty savvy on cultural issues. I hear the things you guys talk about. You know, I, I don't think, for example, I'm talking about metaphor and images and all that. I don't think that Target's marketing strategy really has just thrown your worldview into a tailspin this week. You may have been upset about it, but I, I really don't think Target's affecting you that much. No, there are other visions of the good life that I think are like poison in the water to us. And they look like the American dream. And we start to think that the good life is measured according to our house, to our accolades at work, to our retirement account, our vacations, or how well-behaved and well-balanced and well-educated our kids are. When we live like that and dream like that and desire like that, we slowly lose our joy and our lives become shaped more to the seditious suburban mindset of the world into the mind of Christ. So we must be constantly discerning how others are selling us another vision of the good life. I'm not telling you to be paranoid. Just be aware. And then when you recognize that you're seeing someone's vision of the good life, go into evaluation mode. Think about it. But how do you do that? You might not feel equipped to discern the things that you're hearing and and seeing and, and knowing whether it's of value or not. So how can we evaluate these visions of the good life that don't come from Jesus. Well, first of all, look at the men behind the message and compare them to Jesus. Look at the man behind the message. What were the Pharisees like? Were they people that when you look at them, you're like, yeah, I kind of think I'd like to emulate these guys. Well, the Pharisees were very conservative in their religion and their reading of the Bible. They were very pious, very strict, very straight-laced. They were also conniving to murder Jesus. (laughs) Think about how they interacted with sinners and with people that were suffering. Rather than encouraging sinners and extending God's love and salvation to them, they only burdened their consciences with more laws that they had made up. Not even God's laws. They made it harder for sinners. So if someone's vision of the good life seems compelling to you, but then you look at their life, and their life is just an absolute disaster? (laughs) If you look at their life and say, oh, that's terrible, don't listen to their message. Look to the man behind the message and compare their life to Jesus' life. Their purposes with Jesus' purposes. Their values with Jesus' values. But what if you don't know the man behind the message? I don't personally know the people who write The Mandalorian or Bluey, which are both shows I watch with my children. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know the, the, the screenwriters, right? 
I don't actually know the people that I watch all the time on YouTube. I watch a lot of YouTube, right? Um, I, I've never known anybody that I voted for at a federal level. I don't, I don't know what their lives are like. A lot of the theologians that I read on a daily basis, even to minister to you guys, I don't know them. I can't see their lives. So what do we do with that when we can't see the man behind the message, when their life is not available to us? If I can't see their lives, if I can't see the practical outworking of the thing they're selling to me, can I really trust the visions that they paint? If I can't witness a person's life, their vision of the good life must already be taken with a huge grain of salt. Show me your life. Show me your joy. Show me your love. Do you have a life more abundant? Do you have a life that I want? Do you have a life that looks like Jesus' life? Show me your life, and then I'll consider what you're selling me. Then I'll consider your message. But if I can't see your life, if it's closed off from me in some other place, if, if, if you keep it so guarded that I can't witness it, then I really can't listen that closely and that seriously to you that your message is now going to become a foundation of my life. Anything you say is now going to have a big asterisk after it. Now, if we were to start thinking that way, how would it affect us? This way of thinking would make us distrustful of the relationally disconnected, globalized, media-saturated world in which we live and drive us back to the people and community that we can know and engage deeply. If you want to see my life, like if you really want to catch me at my best and at my worst, you could do it. First, I invite you into my life. Second, you could be a creep and go park in my cove and like look through the windows and see. One morning, I lost my temper at the kids. I slam my fist down on the table. It's at breakfast, I think. Slam my fist down on the table. I stood up and I yelled at one of my kids and I pointed like that. And as I did, I looked up and my neighbor was watering her flowers looking right at me. You can see my life and these people that are sitting in this room. If you want to, you can see their lives. And in fact, we have intentionally created a community here where you can know and be known. Now, uh, what you think, what you think, you people, should automatically have more weight to me because I can see your life. If I can't see your life, I don't trust you. I don't trust your thinking. I don't trust the things you value. So I have to be suspicious of it. And this, what this does, it drives us back to the community and the geography where God has planted us. But keep in mind, though I love St. Tammany, it is not God's country. St. Tammany is just as perverse, sinful, and Babylonian as Washington, Hollywood, or Madison Avenue. I'm not saying that St. Tammany has the perfect vision of the good life figured out. What I'm saying is if you don't know the person behind the vision... If you can't know the source, don't trust it. And that means we have to read, watch, and listen to almost everything very critically. If it's not for my backyard, I'm going to take it with a huge grain of salt. So Christ followers must evaluate every vision of the good life that's being painted, that's being presented to them. And if I can't see the man behind the message, I'm already suspicious of it. 
but we also have to pay attention to the message itself. Compare the narrative, metaphor, or image of the good life and contrast it with Jesus' life and his call to personal holiness. So in both of these analogies, Jesus talks about the voice of these false shepherds that's calling out to the sheep versus them following his voice. So we need to pay attention not only to the man behind the message, we need to pay attention to the message itself. And if a message is clearly in disagreement with Jesus, it needs to be considered dangerous and only to be engaged by the strong. The Pharisees clearly opposed Jesus. Their message was trying to pull people away from Jesus to them. So Jesus warned them. These guys are wolves. They're thieves. They're robbers. Stay away from them. Who was it that engaged with them? Who was it that engaged with their message? It was Jesus, the shepherd. And after he died and was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, who engaged them then? The apostles, the shepherds of the people of God. They are the under-shepherds of Jesus. They're the ones called to care for the weak in the body. So what I'm saying is if you're not a mature Christian, if you're new to this thing, These kinds of messages that clearly oppose Jesus, they are to be avoided. I have a book on my bedside table right now that I promise you is false teaching. I would not, maybe like four or five of you, probably elders, are the only ones I would recommend even read this book. It is dangerous for a Christian because it's actively working against this book. Why am I reading it? As a shepherd, I need to know who the the wolf is, right? I need to know what the lie is. I need to know what the other vision is so that we can work against it. If you are not mature in your faith, you need to avoid this sort of stuff because you can have your joy robbed from you. You can't be pulled away from the flock, but you can lose your joy. Your view of holiness can get all mangled up. Your view of your purpose in the world can get all messed up. You can be impacted with doubt and temptation. So we need to be discerning. Christ followers must evaluate every vision of the good life that's presented. And if it's clearly in opposition to Jesus, most of you just need to walk away. Leave it alone. But not everything that we hear and see is clearly opposed to Jesus and his message. Not every TV show, not every movie, not every politician or podcast is an anti-theistic plot aimed to turn us away from Christ. So what do we do? If the message seems fine, whether we know the man behind the message or not, if the, the message seems fine, what do we do? Well, we need to discern Did I skip ahead? No, that's right. We need to discern the worth of the message in conjunction with your church leaders and family. So if you don't, the message looks fine. You may or may not know the man behind the message. You need to discern the worth of the message in conjunction with your church leaders and family. So the real concern that I have as your friend and pastor, the blind spot that I see in our congregation has less to do with our kids and has more to do with the grownups in the room. Are we being ultra discerning about what our kids and grandkids take in while not realizing what we're taking in on a daily basis? I mean, how much, grown-ups, how much of our temptation, how much of our doubt, how much of our loss of joy finds its origin in content that we undiscerningly put in or the conversations that we have without thinking critically with our, our friends and neighbors? You know, how much of it comes from, from conversations with coworkers, hearing about their pursuit of purpose and satisfaction and convenience and leisure? How much of our lack of joy, how much of our grief is invited in by a simple lack of discretion? Jesus promises us provision and abundant life, and the world offers us provision and life. But their provision robs us. 
their life aims to kill us. And it's not usually the sources we expect. The preachers you watch on TV. The politicians that you've donated to. Conversations with trusted friends. Movements that have captured your heart. These are the things that sneakily twist our imaginations and confuse us. More, those are the ones that do it more than the stuff that wears their agenda on their sleeve. But here's the good news. You're not alone in this. I know that, I don't think any of us have a, have a doctorate in modern philosophy and know how to sort all these things out. You can't do it alone. We're supposed to do this together. If you're a member of our church, you made a commitment to one another's peace and purity, Right? You've also committed to listen to the elders of this church as under-shepherds of Jesus. It's literally my job to talk to you about this sort of stuff. So let's, let's start talking more about these things. Like if you, you watch Ted Lasso, I watched the, the finale a couple of weeks ago. I watched that whole show, and it was like halfway through season one. I was like, oh, they're clearly painting a picture of the good life here. If you watch Ted Lasso, let's talk about it. You watch Bluey with your kids, let's have that conversation. If you're looking at your coworker's life and you're discouraged because you feel like your life is less than in contrast to theirs, let's unpack that together. If relaxation for you looks like scrolling Facebook, let's think about that out loud together. Let's talk about these messages that we're hearing and seeing. Let's compare and contrast them to the person, words, and works of Jesus and figure it out. Is it good for us? Is it true? Am I hearing Jesus' vision of the good life here, or is this something that's ultimately going to try to steal from me or kill me, to draw me away from Jesus and the life that he has for me? You can know these people's lives. You can go into their homes. You can see them at their lowest and at their best. And some of them, myself and your elders included, have been given by God to protect you and to guide you into Jesus' pasture. Christ followers must evaluate every vision of the good life that's presented. So what's my invitation to you today? What are you supposed to do with this? I've got a few conclusory questions. First, what are the inroads? Answer these for yourself this afternoon. Take some time to think about it. What are the inroads in your daily life for false messages about the good life? Do you have any sense of how to discern their relative value or danger? Third, Which Christians in my church can I have an open conversation with about these things? I have a relationship. I I feel comfortable. I can have this conversation with them. And then fourth, is Jesus' life and message the controlling narrative of my life? And I invite you to come back next week. That fourth question is where we're going to continue our conversation next week. We're going to look at Jesus' life and consider how we should be shaping our imagination and our vision of the good life according to the life and works of Jesus rather than the things we hear in the world. So let's pray.